Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land was originally posted 100 years ago in June 2019. It's one that we like a lot. I'll be back on Thursday with a new Shortcuts and in a week with a new Canada Land. Happy Thanksgiving. I've been trolling Jonathan Torrance since 1995. I was 18 years old at the time. I was publishing an underground student newspaper out of my high school. And I get a call from the CBC and they ask me on to Jonavision on their first day of taping this youth focused talk show where I am scheduled to appear with Sarah Pauly on a panel about student rights. Um, and we came up against uh, Three Line Deep Riot Squad, and they started smashing heads, and uh, I had two teeth knocked out of my stomach, bashed in really badly. By one of the cops at the By front of the, of the line? By one of the cops, yeah. The Sarah Pauly part is still online, but uh, my attempt to be a difficult, edgy talk show guest have somehow been lost by CBC archives. Oh, well. There's just something about Jonathan Torrance's blonde, affable, friendly TV presence that really brought out the jerk in me and still does 
whenever he pops up. And he keeps popping up. Oh, man. Jonathan, now look what you've done. That was Jamie's favorite mug. I'm sorry. To the words, Jonathan, don't break anything while I'm on a doctor. It's a talk show. We'll be meeting best friends who have become ex-friends. Oh, even Angela. It's a sitcom. I lent you this bike in perfect condition. Oh. Stick around. Gianna Vision, CBC This Fall. Hi, I'm Jonathan Torrance. Welcome to the show. Today we're bringing you the kind of... All right, here's what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Bubbles is renting this van for $12 a month. You know what I'm saying? That makes this motherfucker an income property. You know what I'm saying? Trudy, can you please print some permission slips? Because I, for one, am giving myself permission to go crazy this weekend. Is Jonathan Torrance a talk show host? Is he an actor? Is this guy a comedian? What is his deal? He always seems to be around. And it all reached ahead for me when he and the CBC put this video out on the internet to celebrate Canada's 150th birthday. How about finding a way to say Canada thank you? Thank you, Canada! For your prairies and mountains and tundra and sea. Thank you! Thank you! Thank you. Thank you, Bobby Blake. Thank you, Alberta State. Thank you, pierogies and lobster rolls. Thank you, all the boards. Thank you, Great White North. Thank you, Forces, folks. You're a hero. I shared my thoughts about that video on Twitter, and Jonathan Torrens and I have not spoken since. Come to think of it, We didn't really speak much before that either, but Jonathan Torrens joins me from Halifax in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Patrick Lee Grant, Joe Jen Clark, Mark Kuznicki, Laura Curiel, Marissa Stroud, Matthew Routley, Sky Allison, and Tamara. Hi, my name's Tamara and I'm a writer, arts administrator, and settler in Tecoronto. I support Candleland because as a journalism school dropout, I'm well aware of the pitfalls of mainstream media and sleep a little better knowing the industry is being held accountable by a scrappy team of cynics. I also appreciate the dynamic storytelling on Cool Mules, Thunder Bay, and Commons, as well as the investigative work of Jaron Kerr. It's important now more than ever to support independent Canadian media and media workers especially unionized ones. Congrats on that, by the way. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Jonathan. Jesse. Why are you? How are you? Why why do you do this? How did this all happen? How did this begin? I grew up in Prince Edward Island, but moved to Halifax when I was 12 and was doing a high school musical at St. Pat's, my high school. Um, So the legend goes, one of the producers of what would become Street Sense saw me in that, suggested I come in and audition. And I actually auditioned several times and didn't get the part at first. The first part I did was in episode three of the first season. I ate fast food for a week and then reported on it. The guy that they hired in in my stead. Fuck you, Morgan Spurlock. He's yeah, I know. Your shit. It was nineteen eighty eight. Nineteen eighty nine. This is my thirty year anniversary from starting on Street Sense this fall. And what happened to you after a week of fast food? Nothing. That's all teenagers <laughs> eat anyway. <laughs> Nothing happened. Yeah. Actually, I beat you to that experiment when I was 11. So. Exactly. And yeah. the only conflict of interest was that I was actually working at McDonald's on Quimple Road in Halifax at the time. And wow. for entertainment value, I would poke happy faces in the quarter pounder with cheeses as they went out through the drive through Corporate wouldn't like that. Yeah. People didn't think it was as funny as I did. So Street Sense... It's interesting. I don't remember it as a comedy show, but I suppose there was comedy. I remember it as it was a consumer affairs show. Like it was like this is a show that private television would never make. There's no incentive for a commercial television station to educate youth about the perils of consumer culture. Like you would review brand name products from big multinational brands and you would throw them into a pit if you didn't like them. We're attacking our self-esteem with the outdated stereotype that girls are losers if they don't have a guy. And guys are just mindless himbos waiting to be captured by a girl. We think the GH system is fit for the pit. On paper, there was nothing sexy about it. And that's another show that at the time didn't really, it wasn't a badge of cool in the halls at my high school. It wasn't 90210. It was on the public broadcaster Saturday mornings when it started about consumer issues. But as a TV school, we got to do like, you know, party of five man tent or whatever the (laughs) pop culture parody of the time was. We did straight to camera stuff. We did, I did a Don Cherry impression. This is very important, I'm telling you. I'll show you how hockey sticks are made. Okay, roll it. Okay, first they take down a tree. Boom. Goes down like uh, old Samuelson. And no one thought it was cool at your school? Not really. I mean, people would say now in hindsight they watched that show, but I'm sure part of it had to do with the fact that there was nothing else on. Part of it had to do with the fact that the sketches were pretty clever and well-written. 
I mean, that is what public broadcasting should be doing. I mean, wh- why don't they do that now? That's a service. To, and it was it was interesting. Like it was it, it really does change. Like everything else on TV is telling you to buy this and this will make you happy. You need to be sexy. And, you know, and then there's this show that's just like, let's look under the hood. The thing that that I'm really most proud of is that it didn't ever condescend to its audience. And that might have been a first for programming aimed at teenagers at the time. It just said, you want to buy Reebok pumps? They cost 130 bucks. Just so you know, it's 10 bucks to make the shoes. The other 120 bucks goes into advertising and paying that NBA star to be seen in them. So buy them if you want. But just so you know, here's why they cost that much. And... That ran for a while. You quit the McDonald's job. Like you were, you must have been a hometown hero at some point. (laughs) I don't know. It never felt that way. In the summertime, I worked at a floating all-you-can-eat lobster restaurant on a converted Dartmouth ferry boat. There you go. You went from Happy Meals to lobster. So la-di-da. Do you know we have McLobster out here? I don't think you have that in Upper Canada. Yes, I know that you have McLobster. Have you ever had one? No, if I'm out east, I eat actual lobster. I don't eat So lobster. you've been out east and you haven't tracked me down. This is true. Why? You and I don't hang. We're not buddies. That's true. Do you want to be my friend? Sure. Why don't we hang? I'll be in Halifax next week. Uh, It turns out all next week I am busy. That's not true. Uh, What are you coming out here for? I got a thing. I got a thing out there. Okay. I'm going to take you for a lobster roll at Evans in the Dartmouth Ferry Terminal. I'm going to actually bother you. Please do. That'd be fun. I would enjoy that. Seeing as we're friends now, you can tell me what really happened with Trailer Park Boys. Ha! Oh, that was it? You baited the hook. Yeah. Pretty good, huh? Yeah, it was good. I will confess that if you look at my so-called career, I have made a habit of leaving before my time was necessarily up. And I think that's what's enabled me to work as long as I have. You leave us just hungry for more. I left Street Sense after seven seasons. The show is at its most popular, but I left to try to do Jonovision. CBC wanted another season of Jonovision. I felt like I'd kind of exhausted the show and the format and was anxious to do something else. It's kind of been a pattern. So Mike Clattenburg was always my friend. He created the show. He worked with me at Street Sense. He and I worked together on Trailer Park Boys for three movies and three specials and seven seasons. And then he sold the format to the three guys. Rob Wells, John Paul Tremblay, and Mike Smith. Yes. My feeling was, I'm probably done with J-Rock. I was always a Clattenburg guy. Yeah, I feel like you dance with who brung you. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything more I can do with the character. Mike Smith, who plays Bubbles, asked if I would do at least a couple of episodes in season eight so that there was some kind of resolution to the character. I did. And when season nine came along, they said, do you want to come back? And I said, you know what? I think I'm done. And my wife said, if you're done, I totally get it. But I feel like it's my job to point out that you had a lot of fun when you did it last summer. And the truth is, the the show's always been bigger than the sum of its parts. It was now a Netflix original, shot seven minutes from my house. We came up with a couple of new things for the character to do. In season nine, I had a stepson. That was fun. Season 10, I had a wife from a trip to Cancun who didn't know that I wasn't Spanish. That was kind of high concept, but something fun and different to do with the character. The character, for those who don't know, is a white guy who actually thinks he's black. And I think for the first while, it was like he acted black like a lot of wannabe type characters. But then eventually, it actually became very high concept where we learned he actually doesn't know that he's not black. A degrees of black, you know what I'm saying? 
all kinds of different motherfuckers are, are different kind of black. You know what I'm saying? T's right here. You know what I'm saying? And like Lionel Richie's right here because he ain't that black. You know what I'm saying? Especially after the Commodores, he's practically not black at all. You know what I'm saying? You got you Michael Jackson, who's like a white black, which you know can be sure in the whack. And if you watch, for example, there was a Christmas special that was kind of a prequel in which J-Rock and T were Jamie and Tyler and they were grunge. So we'd established a pattern of J-Rock kind of scotch taping different personas or trends onto himself throughout his life. So it wasn't, right. it wasn't um, inconceivable that this woman didn't know he wasn't Spanish and that he kept up this ruse when she was around. It was kind of in keeping that he would go to Cancun for a week and come back with an accent. What's weird is that there's a weird algebra, like an algorithm of satire that allows you to do a funny, like black hip hop guy routine because you're not making fun of black people. You're making fun of white people who think they're black. But I was worried when the show came out that the rap community would think I was making fun of them or that black guys I went to high school with would think I was making fun of them. And as it so happens, the character kind of landed right in the valley where the black guys that I knew growing up were like, man, thank God someone's finally making fun of these white dudes. And the white dudes were like, thanks for giving us a voice on TV, dog. No, they weren't. Yeah, they were. They they thought I was flying the flag of, you know, the white rap community driving around in Chevettes with spinner rims from Canadian Tire. They were stoked. Help me with my timeline, though. Who was first? You or L.E.G.? Oh, good question. I would think me. Wow. But v- Vanilla Ice was before J-Rock, and I think Eminem was too. But you know, Clattenburg had this magical ability to create this world in which no one called Bubbles any disparaging words that you sometimes hear in our society. No one judged Randy and Leahy's relationship. When external forces threatened the group in the trailer park, they banded together just like any dysfunctional family. There were no labels it was like nerf teasing because you loved each other as opposed to hurtful exchanges. To be perfectly honest, once uh, it got to the latter seasons and the last couple of seasons, it seemed like some of those lines that were once so sacred were starting to be crossed. That didn't feel great. Right. right. It also felt to me like there were some celebrity cameos, which felt, I don't know, I, I get why from a business standpoint, it helps the show travel and it it makes sense, but it didn't feel like it was in the realm of plausibility that Snoop Dogg would end up in Sunnyvale. And Mm -hmm. I guess the the piss and vinegar that motivated me in my 20s has given way to, I just want to do good things with nice people and sleep in my own bed every night. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm picking up a few little things here. You're a Clattenburg guy and you want to work with nice people. When you hear about the Trailer Park Boys, the three guys at the center of it, you don't hear that they're the nicest guy. I mean, Rob Rob Wells, John Paul Tremblay, Mike Smith charges later dropped for assaulting a girlfriend of his. That's why Lucy DeGuter explicitly left the show because of Mike Smith and the charges against him. I did note that when you stepped away and you thanked people for the experience, you didn't thank any of, the, any of those. Uh, you didn't thank Mike Smith, John Wells, or John Paul Tremblay. Was this a personality thing? No. I have said of that time, there were a hundred small reasons why I made the decision. I've been asked before if there was one big reason why. I think my actions speak as loud as any words I could use. It was time for me to go. I wrote in our best-selling book, Canadianity, that it is my prerogative to leave when I feel the timing is right as much as it's theirs to suck all the marrow from that bone they want to. (laughs) 
And I think it's okay for, for me to just say I'm done and let people read into that uh-huh. what they will. In terms of sucking the marrow from the bone, one of your colleagues, Michael Jackson, who played Trevor, he publicly criticized the show and he said that everybody but the three guys at the top were getting paid scale or a little bit above and that basically it wasn't fair. Well, this is the funny thing. People that watch the show are so rabid and have so much affection for the show and they love it. And you have to understand it is inconceivable that it has traveled as far as it has around the world and continues to inspire and delight audiences really across the globe, thanks to Netflix. So it it was never something we imagined that people would like the show as much as they did. So the first couple of seasons, when we were bringing Coleman coolers from home with our lunch in it and supplying our own wardrobe and sitting around between takes trying to make each other laugh was probably the most fun I've ever had at work. But I think like, like any band that blows up, people start to think their instrument is the reason people like the music and that creates an imbalance and a weird dynamic. And, you know... Like any dysfunctional family, I I don't get anything from telling tales out of school. I don't want to kick a horse that people love and have so much affection for. That's why I think it's just cleanest and simplest if I say, I really enjoyed my time there. I felt I did all I could with the character. It was time to go. Is that a saying? I don't kick a horse that people have affection for. Like, is that a thing that people used to do? Is like, yeah, they just go kick the town horse that everybody else loves. Go around kicking horses. No, I'm sure it's a mixed metaphor of some kind. Yeah, it was just time. Those guys all got rich. I, I, I uh, Did you get rich from tra- Trailer Park Boys? Well, this is the thing. So people say things all the time like, why don't you just be J-Rock, man? It's the thing that you were best at. Just keep being J-Rock. Even if I wanted to be a portly, middle-aged rapper full-time, that still isn't going to put my kids through Compu College. Right? It's yeah. the blinding galaxy of stars in Canadian show business. Give me a break. I do, like, like not unlike a Swiss army knife, I do 10 things that I'm okay at to try to cobble together one machine. I, I couldn't be J-Rock because if you right. play that out for a it's minute. It's kind of funny, actually. An old J-Rock, is, it kind of adds another thing to it. That's well, kind of funny. You know, I get invitations to go play at night clubs as J-Rock. So I'm going out at 11.45 to sing Clap Your Turd Cutter and then going back yeah. to the Best Western in Lloydminster. I, did, yeah. I haven't worked this hard for 30 years to be doing that. I, like as, as a sad premise for a TV show, I get it. Yeah. In your oeuvre, I'm more of a, a Street Sense guy than Trailer Park Boys guy, but I, I, I do admire something. The, the show, I think, was an important proof of a certain concept or at least a disproof of another concept there's this dumb idea in canadian tv that like you can't make it from somewhere and what i admired about trailer park boys is that it is unapologetically from out east and there's all kinds of that's reflected in the, in the show in many ways but i think and you tell me if you agree that anybody who watched that anywhere in the world thought it was about the trailer park near them well i will tell you that when it started airing on bbc america and was bleeped it landed with a thud because people thought it was a documentary, not a mockumentary. That didn't help. Um, it was that kind of mockumentary format with people talking to camera and stuff. The first couple of seasons of Trailer Park must have been before The Office. So that artifice certainly wasn't created by Mike Clattenburg, but it wasn't as widely accepted as it is now. I think he managed to make it quite universal despite its specific 
nature. Much has been written, and I have thought a lot about why it resonated. I think it's because everyone knows a Ricky Julian and a Bubbles in their town. I think it's because if you're watching the show, it makes you feel a little bit better about your own life. And I think it's because there's something beautiful in the fact that no one in that park is feeling sorry for themselves and the hand they've been dealt. They're just kind of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of nice. But I, I think the thing that it taught me as far as working in this industry is no one knew what Showcase is when it came out. No one knew what that network was, but people found it on there because it was good and it stopped them in their tracks. It was genius to come up with an artifice that should look like garbage because from a production standpoint, it's easy to execute. Like if you can't accomplish that aesthetic, you're really doing something wrong. And if anything, it's become increasingly harder in recent years, given how good low-end cameras are, to make it look like trash. In in the weirdest way. The first movie yeah. was an Ivan Reitman movie. It was on 35 millimeter. It didn't make sense. It yeah, looked yeah. gorgeous and it should never look gorgeous. Right. And it just committed to its own universe, as you've described. Like it just, uh, it set certain rules for how this whole thing works and it didn't, it didn't stray from that, at least for, for the first little while. Yeah, but people would be surprised, by the way, at just how much thought goes into the premise and the artifice. For example, if the three guys are breaking into a bank, because I directed episodes in seasons nine and 10, if the three guys are breaking into a bank that's closed, it's easier to have a camera on the inside shooting them climbing through the window. But it doesn't actually make sense given the premise of the show in which this documentary crew is following them around. So these are actual discussions that happen on that set that people might not even consider. In your book... Canadianity, you write that the shelf life of a celebrity in Canada is relatively short. That's not true of, of your work. You've been working in media, like you just sort of always had something on the go. I know, but even I roll my eyes when I hear I've been cast in something. Like, isn't that weird? My reaction is, isn't there anyone else? Yeah, isn't there? Doesn't it seem like in Canada there's like five people who like, it's just decided that these people are going to work? Well, I know for a fact. I mean, CBC a couple of years ago had, there was a, a variety show in development. Where there was one with me, one with Steve Patterson, one with Jerry D, one with Sean Cullen. Like th- those are kind of oh my the God. usual suspects. I'm the yeah. first to say it's not my time. And I think it's great that it's not. I don't envy the networks in Canada because I think for the first time in their history, instead of creating the boom, they're chasing the echo. And that's got to be a weird feeling. That's an interesting way to put it. What do you mean by that? I mean, the internet service has made creators more nimble. It has made getting content out there more accessible. I mean, you were on the first wave of that. So even... I I had a manager once who used to say, look, the good news is no is the second best answer in Hollywood. And at the time, I would always roll my eyes, but it's actually true. If you pitch an idea to a network in Canada, you just want to get a no so you can get your life back and move on to the next thing. Yeah, famously, like in CBC development, sort of notorious for just dragging you along for years. So better to get a no. Yeah, but I get why if you're in a position of power at a network, you have to hedge your bets. So if I'm... If I pull the the trigger on Shit's Creek and it doesn't fly, at least I'm able to say, yeah, but really, with Eugene and Catherine and the team behind it, that was a pretty safe bet. So you're kind of covering your tracks in some way. There's, there's a good chance that it'll fly. But unfortunately, they don't have the resources to take a flyer on things that might otherwise never see the light of day. What's your history with CBC? 
I don't like to talk about that. I never got into that. Ah, the tables have turned. <laughs> Skillfully done. Quid Toronto. pro quo, Clarice. Yeah, I worked there for I worked there for a while. I had a couple of radio shows. Didn't work out. I wasn't a good fit. I wasn't a culture fit. Why? I I uh, I think that I there's parts of it that I really, really took to heart. And, uh, you know, I was mentored by uh, radio host Michael Enright. And when I kind of got this idea of like, you work here, you work for the public, you know, you're not going to own your content. You don't own the intellectual property. You are like kind of a civil servant in a way, but it's beautiful because you can talk about anything. And like, you really have to ask that question of what you do here is like, what is the public value of you telling the story, doing this documentary or us having this conversation? So that was really special to me and I was really committed to that. But I feel like he he was part of a generation of public broadcaster who are actually at odds with the way the place was going. I think you saw that organization from a very different perspective coming through television. So the the Richard Sturzberg, Christine Stewart currents there were trying to commercialize the CBC, very explicitly trying to trying to compete with the big networks. And also I'm just a jerk with authority. And, uh, so yeah, I think all those things combined and I got a lot out of it. I learned a lot of stuff and I got to host two shows, but I, I was, I was never going to have a long-term career there. I was never going to be on the list of the five guys who are always in rotation. I've come to peace with that. Weren't you in the mix for Q <laughs> when it started? Weren't you? Did you hear that? Yeah. I, I remember there was like, there were a few of us and I thought you were one of the guys. What, right at the beginning? Yeah. If you knew that, then, man, that is news to me. Oh, really? Holy shit. I mean, the timing would match up. I was there when that was happening. Yeah. Wow. I know this is one thing we probably share. Like, Peter Zosky was my idol. I held that place sacred. I grew up in a region. Like, the Supper Hour News Show in PEI has a 96% market share because it is the information railroad that everybody hops on when they want to know what's going on. Like CBC hmm. was very important to me growing up in the regions. So seeing Michael Enright or getting to be on Morningside, shooting our show in the same studio that Mr. Dressup was in, those were all very moving, meaningful experiences for me. I think it's interesting. There's like a comparative experience thing we can look at here. Like, I, like and I think it also is reflect, like you wrote a best-selling book about Canada, satirical book. And, uh, I wrote a, a, uh, best-selling satirical book about Canada, by the way, my best-selling number one bestseller has yet to earn back its, its advance. How about yours? Same. And by the way, our book Canadianity came out in October of Canada 150 when people were like enough with the Canada already. Like the timing yeah. couldn't have been worse. And who was it that said, I don't like writing. I like having written. It's, it's a cool thing that I'm glad we did, but it's hard, man. Yeah. I don't think the timing was the issue. I, our publisher was like, we're going to get in early on this whole Canada 150 marketing push. The whole country is going to be doing Canada 150 thing. You're going to be like thumbing your nose at the Canada 150 thing, but reverse marketing is still good marketing. Canada, Canadians rather, rejected Canada 150 as consumers. Yes. And that is true, whether it was banks using that for marketing or our cultural institutions or CBC, we did the, the public, they didn't want Canada 150. They didn't want counter programming to Canada 150. Canada 150 was a bust, man. Nobody gave a shit. It did someone, I mean, aside from ma the math of it all, who thought that was a good idea? Like latching onto that and making a big deal of it. I mean, they were going to make a, it's, you know, it was turning 150, so they're going to do something, I guess. But I guess not everyone in Canada felt it was the 150th anniversary of the country, and it's already problematic for that reason. 
Well, that's kind of the only good thing that came out of it is that it forced those conversations. That in my book. Your book, uh, Canadianity, Stories of the True North, Strong and Freezing. Get it? Yeah. Hold on. Now I get it. What what is what is Canadianity as a concept? Because that's also what your company is called. What is Canadianity, Jonathan? Well, Jeremy Taggart, who was the drummer in Our Lady Peace for 21 years, and I started a podcast. Given my background, I thought a podcast should be very rigid and structured and produced. So I was like, segment one, top five list. Segment two, special guest. Segment three, fun. Segment four, a game. I was very robotic and rigid in the structure of this podcast in the early going, not realizing that podcasts, as you know better than most, is one of the last environments in which you can have a long-form conversation. And it is a warts-and-all environment, and that's what people like about it, in fact. So it was only when we coined the term Canadianity and asked our listeners to define it that we realized we were filling a hole that we didn't even know existed, which is a fondness and affection for growing up in this country and some of the references and cliches that we sometimes roll our collective eyes at. Everything is so splintered and fractured and whatever now that we've kind of stumbled onto these references. Like, remember the Albert commercial from Canadian Tire all those years ago? Or remember Gaetan Boucher skating on butter? And for some reason, this growing audience for our podcast was like, hey, I remember that. And it kind of became a member fest. Hey, member? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Member? So we asked our listeners to define Canadianity, and it was overwhelming, both macro and micro, and that's when we started to find an audience. It's interesting. We're coming at the same thing from different perspectives here. Like, I look at all that, and I'm like, wow, like, can you really build a sense of, like, patriotism or nationhood around, like, remembering the same commercial? That seems pretty thin to me. But it turns out you can, because it, maybe that's even just the jumping off point. So, for example, Jeremy was talking about a game that he and his brothers used to play as kids. It didn't cost much. We grew up in the you-can-come-inside-when-the-streetlights-come-on generation. People wrote in and said, well, these are games we used to play growing up on the farm. It's more Main Street than Queen Street. There's no question. But that's okay, isn't it? I think it's totally fine. We, we, uh, we just have different... Uh a different approach to these things. I know, but it's it's like, so don't listen. It's like the Ricky Gervais bit where he says, you know, the internet is like standing in front of a bulletin board, seeing an ad for guitar lessons, pulling off the little number and calling the guy and saying, I don't want to take guitar lessons. <laughs> no problem. Just don't. Like, you, you didn't have to call me and tell me that. You just don't watch it. I did call you. I'm telling you that. You did call me. You did tell me that about Thank You Canada. Yeah. Oh, geez. Okay, let's talk about that. You want to talk about that? Yes. See, you're operating under a big misconception that a lot of people have, so maybe it's my fault. I don't know. But, like, I'm a critic, right? And, like, people understand that if I was a film critic, I would have to, like, maybe I don't like every Steven Spielberg movie. Oh, this one's a stinker. And then also that critic might also have another show where he interviews directors. And that would not be a conversation where he would be like, hey, Spielberg, I thought your last movie stunk. Right. Like, you know, you're a guest on my show right now. I don't want to tell you that I thought your thank you Canada video, which I made fun of you for on the internet stunk and ask you to defend that video. You don't have to do that. Like I'm, I'm here to look at your career and show you respect. I know, but I feel like we should talk about it. It was the worst. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. I feel like you're exaggerating. I don't know that I've seen anything worse. Thank you. Canada was a song. We rewrote the lyrics to Alanis's thank you. Yes, you did. In Canada 150. It was full of the same kind of cliches that we sometimes roll our collective eyes at. I think mm -hmm. 
I think, Jesse, at best, mm-hmm. it's a bit of an eye roll. It's a little earnest and a little on the nose. I don't think it's worth the vitriol <laughs> that it sparked in you. And this is my concern for you. Yeah. I'm worried that you are going to mm-hmm. cynic yourself into a corner whereby you're in a position where you can't actually say something nice or feel sincere because you have to poke everything with a stick and you have to look at everything with a cocked eyebrow. And I'm, I guess, I guess now that we're friends, yeah. my, my question to you is what's the long ball there? Is, is it going to get old? Is it going to get played out? Do you, so what do you, you poke your head out the window? What day is it, boy? There's still time. Like, how do you de-scrooge? The guy who plays J-Rock is asking me if if my shit's going to get played out. All right. Well, the guy um, who played J-Rock went on to play Vice Principal Robert Cheely on Mr. D and then went on to yes, have a did. podcast called Tagger and Torrens. I have, like I said, I'm not the best at any one thing, but it helps that I yeah. do about seven. I also can do so many things like praise you for the work that I like. But if you're asking me what my problem was with that video and whether I'm just a sour person who needs your concern and, 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 um, and advice. If you're asking me that question, I will answer it for you. My problem with the video beyond just eye rolling and why I decided to make an issue out of it is like to sing a song. Thank you, Don Cherry. Thank you, Tim Hortons. Like to me, why bother? No, no. Why bother? Why, why bother responding to something that's a why bother? No, I, I take it personally worse than that. No, to me, it's like, if I heard a song that was like an American birthday song that was like, thank you, bald eagles. Thank you, apple pie. Thank you, Bing Crosby. I, I would just want to die because the vision of what it means to be American presented in that is so specific to a certain t- part of America and a certain rhetoric of America that's a bygone. I guess I'm kind of making a pastiche out of a 50s thing because that's where I have to go back to. Right. Like I'm trying to figure out, I guess, in a sense, the same thing you are is like, what the hell is the social contract of being Canadian? What does it mean to be Canadian? And this list of, of the people who play street hockey and, you know, have a soft spot for Don Cherry. Like I look out my window in in Toronto and maybe one out of 50 people knows those reference points, but that's not what the country is anymore. And if that's all we've got, you know, if that's what we're, what unites us, then we're in trouble. So I guess that's where I came at it, which is not fair to make you the fall guy. But then again, you did make that video. Totally. And you know what I'm going to say that's going to surprise you? What? That's a fair knock. It is a very specific take on a very specific lane of Canadian cliches. I wholeheartedly agree. There you go. I don't know what we do now. You don't know where we go from here? You hear that song as, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. That's what, that's how you heard that song. With like less testicles, yeah. Yeah. That's fine. It was my idea. I stand behind it. It seemed to appeal to a certain section of people. It's probably not something I'll do again. It was part of an agonizing development process at CBC that was ultimately unfruitful, and I'm probably richer for it. But as I said to you at the time... In our exchange on the Twitter machine, uh, you asked if the companies that were mentioned in it were on the payroll or if we were on the payroll for them. It was the only way I could explain it to myself. I know. And my answer at the time was it was our earnest but seriously moment at the end of a very silly hour full of non sequiturs. So there you go. 
Are you rethinking that lobster roll imitation about now? No, not at all. This is the best thing about being at this stage of my career. You know, the fact that you hated that doesn't even make my heart rate go up. And maybe that feels the best of all. Because I'm at the stage of my career where I think if you make a living in the arts in Canada, you did it. You're in the top 5% of people that would love to be doing that. You don't have to, you, this is justify your life. You, you are a successful, like there's like maybe a list of 30 successful people who've had a career. You're absolutely right. I mean, we're wrestling with the same problem here as we move into these Heineken years, my friend. I know. Like it's a hustle, right? Like, and you, you've got a sunnier disposition and a more mainstream Canadian disposition. I will, I will gambit and a less sour and nasty one than mine because you've been in the mix. You're on the list of the five guys who gets considered for every show, but you're still like working and working four hustles at once. I understand that in addition to performing <laughs> in television productions, you run a business renting trailers to I do. television productions. Rollingproductionrentals.com. This is what you got to do. This is what you have to do. You have to hustle and grind. But I live in a part of the country where the cost of living is more reasonable than other parts of the country. So if I did have to coast, I could coast easier by having a trailer business, for example, that is hopefully pretty steady. If I have hills and valleys in my on-camera work, I can coast a little easier. I do some corporate work in the States. That allows me to be a little more selective about the things that I do. You are a affable and likable guy who's known to being good to work with, which probably has a lot to do with why you've stayed employed all these years and also may inform your disposition, which is a pretty sunny one towards Canada and its cliches and all these things. And then, you know, I'm not blasting you for any of that stuff. That's fine. You've got, I think you've got reason to feel good about all these things, but I also feel like in this kind of larger project that I've undertaken of trying to understand Canadian media and Canada kind of through it, you have something to contribute to that. Like, what do you make of all of this? I'm sure you've got your own media criticism, your own critique of the system and how it could be better. Well, I had I had kind of an epiphany in the past year because I had a show, Taggart and Torrens was in development at Comedy Network for two and a half years. And mm. I had a show, as I mentioned, in development at CBC for over two years. It was a no for both of them ultimately. And in both cases, the the explanation was some version of we have to concentrate on creating content for the internet, this whole other platform. We don't have any additional funding to make TV shows, but this is now a very real responsible of these responsibility of these broadcasters. So the the light bulb moment for me was, well if they're concentrating on making stuff for the internet, why am I concentrating on making stuff for networks? Uh-huh. So I started Canadianity Content Studios with Taggart and a partner of our Sylvia. And the idea is it's never been cheaper to bankroll little mini pilots. Let's make the things we want to make and then take them directly to sponsors and cut out the middleman. So that is enormously satisfying because you don't get network notes like, can you not name that character Josie because I went to high school with a Josie and she was nothing like that. That's an actual yeah. note. We can make the thing we want to make. And then if someone buys into it, then they know what they're buying. You get to make exactly what you want to make and it's yours. And uh, if CBC says no, just make it anyhow. We, we've arrived at the same place, my friend. Well, exactly. And the thing is, if it tries to be all things to all people, it stops being anything to anyone. And I always say there are a hundred ways to core an apple and they all work, but it has to be someone's idea ultimately. And I would argue in this particular case, it should be mine. Thank you, Canada. You know what we're doing? We're driving people to go watch Thank You, Canada, and a debate is going to rage about whether it's the worst thing people have ever seen.
Oh, absolutely. I have no problem sending traffic to that, you know, because people are going to think I'm mean to you unless they see it for themselves. And, and <laughs> just, just, just to help you, <laughs> I want you to know what you've introduced to my life. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for blowing my mind, first of all. I, I absolutely did not know that I was uh, in consideration for that show. If, in fact, your information about who was being considered to host Q at the beginning uh, is accurate, that is news to me, absolutely. And uh, I'm still just comprehending that. But you know what's going to happen. I don't know if you know this, but there is a small but committed clutch of Gameshi truthers who are convinced that the whole thing was a setup, a conspiracy that I hatched like when I was eight years old or something. And I, I, I think you've just provided them with, with material uh, you, like you, that, that is a hypothetical motive for, 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 for my, uh, for my takedown. So uh, I'll be living with the Twitter uh, ramifications of that for the next 10 years. So y- you got me. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you. I was so glad you reached out and that this wasn't a hatchet job. I wouldn't even know how. Your lobster rolls on me. That is your Canada Land. I hope you liked it. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. And when you go there, you can sign up for our newsletter, which is well worth your time. It just assembles everything that we do every week and has a ton of great stuff from our staff. It's a good read. New production on this episode this week by Rosalind Kufour. The original episode was produced by Kasia Mihailovic and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do here at Canada Land, please support us. A uh, quick update for our listeners. I didn't get that lobster roll. Apparently, Jonathan Torrance was required to volunteer at his child's school that day. He has promised, however, that we will have that lobster roll at some point in the future. <laughs>